All right. Hi. Good to be here tonight. How are y'all? Good. I'm not from the South. I'm from Minnesota, but I like that phrase. Hello, y'all. Uh, I'm so grateful to come here, to be coming on Sundays to worship, uh, to know that other people are drawn close to God, and to know that we are seeking him together, seeking God. It's encouraging me to see other people seeking God. Um, I've been a Christian almost all my life. You'll hear more about that in a little bit. And really, I felt like until, until I had my first son, I felt like I knew how to be a Christian, you know? I knew how to connect with God. I knew what it meant to pray. I knew how to study my Bible and things. Um, and then I had kids. Uh, I have some pictures of them. So these are my kids. This was last week. They got bunk beds. And so Jack's five on top. Ben is two. Uh, and then my next picture is, this is the day Jack was born. I've been a mom for five years, two months, and 19 days today. The transition to motherhood was a tough one for me. Uh, not only physically and emotionally, but spiritually. I wrote down, about when Jack was about four months old, I wrote down and described what that transition was like for me. I'm going to read that to you right now. I found that the stuff I normally talked to God about suddenly didn't relate to my life with the baby. God didn't offer much input on breastfeeding or on if a circumcision was healing. He didn't tell me why Jack's poop suddenly turned green or how to turn it back again. And I was just too tired to think about anything else. My Bible became all of the different breastfeeding and baby sleep books I could get my hands on. I was obsessed with caring for Jack. It was all I could think or talk about. Because leaving the house was a hassle and I was often very tired, I didn't go to church more than a couple of times for the first two months. My God was no longer my God, but my baby. A person I obsessed over and loved more than I could ever imagine possible. Someone I would die for in a second. I haven't worshipped God like that in a long time. That was a hard time in my life. I still get choked up reading that. I really was in over my head with a baby I didn't understand. The problem I describe here, though, was not my circumstances. It was how I handled my circumstances. I did not turn to God. I didn't pray. I didn't read my Bible. Not even for a few minutes. Instead, when I had any time to myself, <laughs> I turned to television and entertainment. I watched the entire first season of Desperate Housewives in two weeks. <sighs> I chose to not turn to God. And I suffered because I was missing him. My heart hurt and I missed him. My God was no longer my God, but it was my baby. It is so easy to begin worshiping something or someone other than God. And oftentimes we don't even realize when it's happening. It's just like a, we slip into it. Becoming involved in something turns into being preoccupied in it, to becoming obsessed with it, and you can't stop. You can't put it down. You can't imagine life without it. We don't realize when our love for a person becomes an obsession with that person or feel like we need that person. Our passion for art or music or our job 
becomes a worship of that art or music or job to the exclusion of God. But it happens. It happens. And when it happens, we don't turn to God. We don't bring it to God. We don't entrust that person or thing to God, but we continue to worship this idol that we formed for ourselves. And we wonder, where is God? Where did he go? Why can't I feel his presence? Not recognizing that we're not actually turning to God in the first place. The Israelites, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, were not any different. We've been studying... We've been studying the book of Samuel, or the Samuel's life. And in Samuel, we have seen how the people have tried to manipulate God. They thought they were worshiping God, but really, they were worshiping a box. They brought the Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol of God's presence, and was a wonderful symbol that God gave them of his presence that was in the tabernacle. And they decided, you know what? We're going to take this presence this God into battle with us in the hope that we will win this battle. And what happened? They lost. Not only did they lose the battle and lose many lives, but they lost this ark. They lost the ark of the covenant. Samuel wasn't present in that story. He wasn't mentioned at all. And that was very purposeful by the author. Because before that, we had seen how Samuel was called up to be a prophet of Israel. He was called and he was the one who spoke the words of God. And in that story, nobody turned to Samuel. Nobody turned to hear from God. But they worshipped the box instead. They worshipped an idol instead. They put God in a box and God did not show up for them. Eventually, the ark left the Philistines, all by itself in many ways. Read that story. It's really fun in chapter 6. But they did, did not return to the tabernacle. It didn't return to the place of worship. It stayed in a town some miles away. And it stayed there for 20 years. And this is where we find the Israelites not having the Ark of the Covenant in a place of worship. And this is where we are in First Samuel 7, starting verse 2. Then all of the people... Of Israel turned back to the Lord. Then, once they had lost God, or what they felt like they lost God, they had they finally turned back to the Lord, got outside of their box. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. In order for the Israelites to be able to turn to the Lord, they had to turn away from something. Their idols. Worship of idols was prevalent in that land, in that time, in Canaan at that time. I have some pictures. This is some of the idols that they worship. This is um, Ashtoreths that you mentioned in this, in this passage. Naked women. My understanding is they're really common to find. <laughs> like, you go digging and you'll find a lot of these, these idols in that area. Uh, the, the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth was a sexual worship. It was a belief that these gods provided fertility in both land and in 
women's bodies, people's bodies, that children would be produced. So they turned to these gods seeking food and children. And these are needs. You know, you can understand sort of why they would want to worship this. But this is so against God's commandments. First of all, he said, there shall be no other gods before me. But second of all, no adultery. Don't have sex outside of marriage. And a lot of the worship involved having sex with temple prostitutes. And who knows what else. So Samuel says, if you are serious, if you are really serious about turning to the Lord, you need to turn away from these gods. And that's what repentance is. Actually, the Hebrew word repent means to turn. It means to turn from something in order to turn to something. When we repent, we turn from and to. Samuel was not just asking them to throw away these idols, but he said, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, do this. All of your hearts. Today, if we hear that phrase, we think of the heart, we think of it as a place of emotion and feeling. And we think, turn the Lord with all of your feeling. Mean it. Just mean it, like in your heart. And I believe back then, That was part of the meaning of all of your heart, but it wasn't all of it. To worship the Lord with all of your heart was to worship the Lord intellectually. Make a choice. Make a choice. You need to choose today if you're going to turn to the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your mind. Very serious thing. Turn to the Lord, not just with your, your feelings. I think... Sometimes we get confused with repentance and we think of repentance as this feeling of guilt. But a feeling of guilt doesn't really produce any change. It doesn't produce the turning. A feeling of guilt often turns into like self-hatred, actually. It can turn against you because you're caught up in this feeling of remorse, but there's no action in that. So repentance, this true picture of repentance, is to turn I keep turning physically because I feel like that's what it is. It's like you're really actually turning to God and leaving that behind. It is behind. It is past. It is done. Then Samuel said, verse 5, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. Now, Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. People came together to confess their sins. They came together and acknowledged that they, as a nation, had turned from the Lord. And this water that was poured out is probably a symbol of their cleansing or a giving up. Um, They fasted that day, so they gave up food, maybe water as well. We don't know for sure, but it, it has to do with their repentance. They confessed to the Lord, we have sinned. And they were reunited in the Lord. Samuel served them. He led them. He was a judge of them. He had been a prophet. He was a priest. He served them. And he served as the one who interceded for them. And interceded for them and brought their prayers to God and confessions to God. And God forgave them. Verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, The rulers of Philistines came up to attack them. 
when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. This is the group of people who just defeated them and slaughtered them and taken their ark. Israel had gathered to pray, to worship. And the Philistines thought they were gathering to form an army, so they attacked them. It makes sense in a land where they're out constantly fighting over it. But the Israelites were not prepared for battle. They came to worship, not to fight. So they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord for our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Finally, in their time of need, instead of trying to manipulate God, they turned to them in their hearts. They called out and said, Samuel, you have to intercede for us. We can't do this on our own. The Lord needs to step in. We cannot do this. We are not ready. And Samuel interceded with worship. The offering that is offered here is an offering of worship. We would expect that after repentance, they would offer, you know, a a sacrifice for a sin offering or um, reconciliation or something. There's other offerings. There's so many different, different sacrifices in the law. And Samuel offers a worship offering. I believe he recognized that Israel was reconciled to God. Israel was together, united with God. He was with them. They were in relationship. And Samuel was acknowledging this and saying, Lord, we worship you. Please come help us. We worship you. We have need of you. Come help us. The Israelites did absolutely nothing to win this battle. The Lord is the one who thundered the great thunder. (laughs) And he routed the the Philistines before them. He brought them basically into the Israelites' hands so that the Israelites could win. And after this, Samuel acknowledged the Lord's help by setting up a stone, probably a very large stone, as a place of remembrance, remembering what the Lord has done. Ebenezer means a stone of help. A stone of help. So that people could always look to the stone and remember what God had done. And that this remembering would be, spur them on to continue following him. To continue not going to the idols, but turning to the Lord. To continue staying focused on the Lord. The Israelites turned to God and he helped them. Verse 13 says, So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah 
judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he had also held court for Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. So under Samuel's leadership, as prophet, priest, and judge, the people of Israel maintained a reconciled relationship with God. There was peace in the land. Peace. Just as God promised them there would be in the law. In the covenant God had with Israel. We don't, we don't understand this law today. Unfortunately, I think we often interpret the Old Testament, the law that's found in the first five books of the Bible, as being a list of rules that God is watching to see if we're going to break and smite us. I think we, I honestly think we interpret it this way because that's how the Pharisees treated it. They've treated it as a do not list that God was constantly watching to see if they would break. But God is not the one who condemns us. Sin condemns us. When sin came into the world, we were separated from God. The Old Testament law provided a way for Israel to be reconciled to him. Not just through living the correct life, that's good. But knowing that people are going to sin. God recognized they're not going to be able to follow all of this. So he provided sacrifices of atonement that would provide a way for them to be reconciled to God. You know, saying, a sacrifice would say, Lord, I'm, so, I'm sorry. Here is my evidence that I'm sorry. Here's a sacrifice to you that I'm giving this to you to make up for it, to redeem myself for this sin. And that would reconcile the people to God. This is a law of grace. God didn't have to do this. People could have stayed far away from God. People, all people could have died in sin. But God chose to provide a way. Israel was meant to be a nation that would bring all of the nations to God. He intended it to provide salvation. And under Samuel, we can actually see it kind of working. There was peace in the land. Israel as a nation had peace because they were in relationship with God. I think Samuel had a big part in that, in leading them to turn to the Lord and continuing to offer sacrifices for them. Backing up to the bigger picture, taking into account the New Testament, the New Covenant, we can see that the Old Covenant had its challenges. Hebrews 10 says this, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never fully take away sins. Every day, sacrifices were offered. Because every day, people were sinning. Every day, there was need for someone to stand in and offer a sacrifice. This is exhausting. I can't imagine being a priest. Uh, killing that many animals. Really. It would be wearying. Samuel would have done this. But this could never fully take away sins. It took them away until they sinned again, basically. And God recognized this. And in Christ, this has changed. Jesus, fully human and fully God, completed both sides of the covenant. 
He lived a perfect life as a human and made a perfect sacrifice as a human. And God accepted it. I mean, it blows my mind kind of. Jesus both made the sacrifice and accepted the sacrifice as God. It says, when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was done. No more sacrifices needed to be made. He sat down. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being holy. Praise God. This is the gospel. This is the truth. This is, this is what we live for as Christians. Christ died for us so we could be reconciled to God. Christ died so we can be forgiven. Christ died so we can be saved, saved from our sin, saved to death. If you don't know, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much for this salvation. Uh, Romans 10, 9 says, if you, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We are not only saved. We are not only saved from something, though. You know, it says here, we are forgiven of our sins and purified from all unrighteousness. We are saved to something. God intends to bring us something. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. The old sinful person stuck and the same old hurts, habits, and hang-ups has become a new creation and is free to live without them through the power of the Holy Spirit within them. This is the truth. This is how we can live. I don't know if we live this way. <laughs> Truthfully, I don't know if we live this way, but there are constant, there are so many stories of people who have found freedom and found a new life in Christ. Story night, here it's come. It's a great place where we share our stories of how Christ has done this. If you haven't been to story nights, go online to the podcasts. Start listening to the stories. Sometimes when I'm feeling down, I just turn those on. Because it's amazing. It's uplifting to hear what God has done in people's lives. It's so dry tonight. I haven't had a chance to share at story night. So if you don't mind, I'd like to share a little bit of my story with you tonight. Is that okay? Oh, yes, thank you. This morning, I didn't think the people wanted me to. Nobody responded. <laughs> All right. I have always had a deep desire to belong, to belong, to know I'm accepted ever since I was really young. Just knowing that I'm, I'm friends with somebody like this is so, makes me feel so good inside that somebody else likes me. And, you know, I did, really, honestly, like through elementary school and middle school, I just, I always knew that I had friends and I found a group of friends and I felt okay, you know? And then I went to high school and my high school had probably 2,100 students. My graduating class had 525 people. And it was a combination of two middle schools coming together. My freshman year... I remember looking around in some of my classes as we go through roll call on the first day and going, where did everybody go and who are these people? Because these are all people from West, and I'm not so sure about that. Middle schools were East and West. West. So, <laughs> so I felt like an outsider. 
I felt like I didn't have any friends and I felt like I didn't belong. So I constantly was looking for friends. And this wasn't totally true. I, I did have a best friend. She's like a sister friend to me. We've known each other since we were four. She's always been there. And I had other friends that I made through the time. And a boy even liked me at one point. It's freshman year. <laughs> I didn't really like him. It was really awkward. But <laughs> yet, I always felt like I didn't have this place in high school. I didn't feel like I belonged in high school. I didn't know where I fit. And I didn't really have very good self-esteem. I didn't look at myself very well. I saw other girls as prettier, funnier, smarter than I. I saw them getting more guys' attention, cuter guys' attention. And I constantly measured myself as less than. And I tried to be like them because I did not see the good in me. I remember trying, I would look at, I would look at the, the popular girls and see how outgoing they were. And I'm like, I'm going to be outgoing. <laughs> that didn't work. I was an introvert. Like, it was just like... I couldn't. I wouldn't, it wasn't me. I would try to be the class clown, but I couldn't say a couple words in front of everybody. This is incredible that I'm up here, by the way. I was, I felt like I was always lacking. And I was always trying to put myself out there and be something that I wasn't. And so this downward spiral of sense of self, feeling like I didn't belong in the groups that I wanted to belong in, created a sense of deep anxiety in me. And eventually, I was diagnosed with social anxiety disorder. It was so bad that I never, ever wanted to pick up the phone to call anybody. Because I don't know what they're thinking on the other end. I can't see them. I can't read their facial expressions. What if they didn't want me to call them? All these things would go through my head. I didn't want someone to watch me sign a check because I was afraid they were going to judge me as my handwriting. I constantly was anxious inside, you know, just that feeling of, of nervousness. It was constant. I ended up having stomach problems, and I would blush all the time. Oh, my goodness. I remember people going, your face is purple. <laughs> just, stop talking about it. It was miserable. And alongside this feeling that I was rejected socially, I also felt like I was rejected spiritually. I didn't know God loved me. I didn't know it. I'd been a Christian since I was five years old. I believed in Jesus when I was five years old, and I confessed my sins, and I turned to him. Yet somehow, I was raised to be a good girl. You know, I was raised to always do the right thing. And I felt that if I did not continue on being the good girl, that God would reject me. And I had this perverted view of Christ's death on the cross. I believed, I believed that I put him there. I believed that my sin put him there, that he did not choose to go there, but that he had to go there. I didn't understand the grace that was given, that his choice to go to the cross for me. I thought the cross was like a guilt trip. I battled those lies. Uh, I remember looking at the verse, God is love, and trying to convince myself that God loved me. 
And it just didn't work. Because I really just didn't believe it. I would look at it and be like, that can't be true. And this sense of rejection from both my peers and God was so incredibly painful that I wound up in a deep depression and was suicidal. Eventually got treatment and through medications found some healing. You know, I was able to go on with my life and I had joy again. But I still struggled with this low self-esteem. I still, I still struggled to know that God loved me. It was always kind of this nagging thought that he didn't or that I'd be rejected. So when I was in my mid-20s, I don't exactly remember when, I finally took it to God in prayer in a way that I, I hadn't before. I don't know how to explain it, but it was just a sense that I couldn't continue on serving him if I didn't know he loved me or I just needed something to change. So I was in prayer about this and really crying out. And I'd done this before. So I don't know what was different this time. But God broke through this struggle and he said, to me, your sin did not put me on the cross. I chose to die for you. I died for you before you were Christian. I thought I had been a Christian my whole life. You know, I always saw it that way. He said, no, I died for you before you followed me. I died for you when you were not good enough because I love you. I loved you. I died for you when you were not good enough because I loved you. Oh, this, this message is still so incredibly profound to me because those voices are still there, you know? It hasn't completely gone away. But, oh man, there was a breakthrough. I consider this like kind of like a new point in my life. Like, I knew God loved me, you know? I knew it. It was like I was a new Christian all over again because... I was changed. There was a change. I no longer felt quite so insecure. I was able to continue pursuing studies and, you know, stand up and speak in front of people without worrying quite so much. I still worry a little bit. But what's quite so much what they're thinking about me? You know, I was able to make friends and I was able to just have a confidence about myself because I knew God loved me and he created me this way. And he died for me before I was good enough. I didn't have to worry about it. I know I am loved by God. The cross no longer is a guilt trip. The cross is telling me I'm loved by God. You know, and it's still a struggle to live this way. I constantly have to choose to turn from looking to other people for my approval. Because that's what I want to do. That's what I was doing my whole life. Please tell me I'm good enough. Please accept me. I was idolizing them. I have to turn and turn to God. I have to reject the message that I am rejected by God and accept that I am loved. It's a choice. And so often I'm going, God, you have to help me with this. I can't do this by myself. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to change. And he's like, that's okay. I'm with you. I am with you. Holy Spirit is in you. I will do it. 
And so I continue to cry out when I'm struggling with this sense that I am rejected, I don't fit in, I'm not meeting up to other people's expectations. I'm going, God, you have to change me. You have to help me put my eyes on you. And he does. There are times, you know, even though I've had this change, there are times where I have really walked away from this. Um, Becoming a mom was a whole new thing for me. And like I said, I didn't turn to God at that time. And so I was turning to other people, was turning to others for acceptance. And I kind of lost that sense of self. And I'm very aware of my tendency to go back. That song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's true. I'm prone to leave it. And then it goes on to say, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He can take it and he can do it. We all confess Christ once, right? We have, maybe we don't remember that, that birthday, <laughs> you know, that Christian birthday. Maybe it just kind of started happening in your life and you can't really put your finger on it when you turned and became a Christian. But there is that, that turning that happens when you become a Christian. That is definite. And that is, you are saved. You are saved in that. And there is also the continuing on of being made holy. Where we continue on turning. And we continue to turn. And we continue to be converted. And converting meaning, being converted meaning to turn from something in order to turn to God. So we are converted from our old life, our old self, to the new one. Oswald Chambers called this continuous conversion. He says this, the hindrance of our spiritual life is that we will not continually be continually converted. There are wages of obstinacy where our pride spits at the throne of God and says, I won't. I won't. We deify independence and willfulness and call them by the wrong name. What God looks on as obstinate weakness we call strength. There are whole tracts of our lives which have not yet been brought into subjection. And it can only be done by this continuous conversion, this continuous turning to God. Slowly but surely, we can claim the whole territory for the Spirit of God. In other words, though we are saved, there are parts of our lives that we do not bring before God. We cling to those areas, refusing to repent for them, or even just not believing that God can change them. Like I said, we are not alone. We are not alone. Think of the new life, what it could look like. I mean, think of alcoholics who are free from that. I have friends who have been alcoholics and are sober for years. This is a great change. This is done by God's power. This is a new life. What about other addictions that might occur? Addictions to sex like like the Israelites had with the worship of Baal and Asherah. You know, pornography is really a desire for intimacy. Deep down, it's looking to someone who seems to be revealing themselves to you. But it's such a surface-level intimacy. If we can turn away from pornography, we can find real relationship in other people and in God. 
not just, I mean, if you're married, great, and your spouse, you can have a fulfilling sex life. But in other people as well, you can really open up and have a new life and relationship with other people. If work is overcoming our lives, and we can't seem to put our work down because it's demanding and it needs us, and we really believe that we have to do it every single moment of the day, and we can become run down by that, that's exhausting. We can turn from that sense that we were worshiping our work and have, and we can put it down and have times of rest. God created a day of rest for us so that we can be rejuvenated. This is a new life. Turning from anger, turning from anger, which produces bitterness and hatred and an inability to love other people. If God can take away our anger and we turn towards love and love and we find that we can love other people and we can have patience with other people and our lives have a peace about it that it didn't have before. This is a new life in Christ. The spiritual disciplines of repentance and confession and turning are foundational to the fully Christian life. We must continue to turn from our idols, bring every part of our life before God. If we want to really experience what it is to be a new creation, to see that the old is gone and the new has come. The Israelites did something we rarely ever do today. They confessed their sin as a community. They gathered together in one place for the sole purpose of confessing their sin. The New Testament says that we, we are supposed to confess our sins to one another. This is good. Acknowledging our sins to one another is scary because we wonder, are we going to be rejected? What are they going to think? If they knew what I did yesterday, they would not want to be my friend. If they knew, if they really knew what was in my heart, I would be cast out. But, and so we confess only to God. And we are forgiven. Yes, we are forgiven by God. But this sin does, it remains inside of us in darkness. It remains in a place where in some ways the light of God does not touch it. But when we speak the truth about what we've done, it comes into the light. And God is there with the other person. And you're there together. And there is healing and there's forgiveness in a way that does not occur when we hold it to ourselves. It really is a beautiful thing. Experiencing forgiveness from another person. I love in morning church when we confess our sin and there is the assurance of forgiveness. Every week there is the statement from the front that our sins are forgiven. We need that assurance. Our sins are forgiven. What could it look like here if we confessed our sins to one another? I think we'd have such a greater sense of intimacy within this group. Our church, loving each other through our faults, helping each other really, truly turn from the thing that we think we can never turn away from 
helping one another know that we are forgiven and God is with us in order to help us. I think it would be really profound. I think God would be able to move through us in ways that he hasn't yet. If we could confess our sins to one another. Truly living as he intended us to. Truly living in the new person. The old is gone, the new has come. In full reconciliation with God. In full reconciliation with one another. And in reconciliation even within ourselves. And healing within ourselves. And in this state of reconciliation and healing, we are free to worship and pray in a way that we probably never have before. Free with peace and joy and love and all those wonderful fruits of the Spirit that are promised to us. And that is what the Israelites were able to do. Samuel was able to worship God in reconciliation. And they were in a place where they needed help. And God provided for them. Because they truly were turned towards them. After God saved the Israelites from the Philistines, Samuel set up that Ebenezer, that rock, the stone of help. So the Israelites would remember what God had done. Because we forget. Don't we? We forget. We go, God, where are you? You never do anything for me. Not remembering, you know... I don't know, the huge financial blessing that came 10 years ago or something. You know, things happen and then time goes on and we we don't remember what God has done. We don't remember where we had experienced healing before. We don't remember where things were reconciled. So we can create these Ebenezers for ourselves, these symbolic signs of remembrance of what God has done. It can be a rock. It could be something else. Uh, I actually have a couple that I brought for me show you. Uh, These are just a couple of little polished stones um, that I was given. And one says the words year four on it. And this one represents the fourth year of my marriage to Tim when I was convinced that we weren't going to make it through. And we both turned to the Lord. And in two months, we're celebrating our 10th anniversary. (laughs) The Lord did that. Really, truly, the Lord did that. This one as mourning because last year I went through an intense time of mourning my losses that I hadn't ever really mourned before. And the Lord called me into that. And the Lord was with me through that. And so I have these stones and they're little and they're in our bathroom and Tim didn't know what they were until this morning. I don't know how that happened. But <laughs> so there's, there's stones, but there's also other things. I have uh, this necklace on me. I have actually another necklace that was also an Ebenezer, but that's another story. This one is uh, called the Jerusalem cross, and it represents the five wounds of Christ on the cross. And it's by these wounds that we are healed. And so when I can't remember what God has done, I kind of grab onto this necklace if I'm wearing it, if I remember to put it on in the morning. And I remember that he died for me because he loved me before I was good enough. And it encourages me to continue on. It really does. And it can, I just, if you have something that you can use as a remembrance in order to remind you and then to encourage you to keep walking with God, do it. You know, I think we move away from symbols sometimes because they're cheesy or weird or I don't know. They're very helpful. They're very helpful. (sighs) 
now I ask you, what do you need to turn from in order to turn to God? What in your life are you choosing over God? It could be really simple. Like, it could be your cell phone. For a long time, it was the first thing I picked up in the morning. And there'd be notifications of people liking my Instagram photos or or messages on Facebook. Oh, Facebook, you suck me in. (sighs) And so I didn't, you know, I didn't go to my time with God in prayer because I was already on my phone. It could be as simple as that. It could be that you know that you need to turn from an addiction and you don't know how. Or you've never tried before. It could be work. It could be a person. Only you know who or what it is. Maybe it's a sin, anger, willful sin, something you don't even know that you're doing. The Lord will show you. So we are going to take some time right now to sit in silence and reflect. Uh, on your seats, there should be these little note cards. And there's a, there's a pen about every third seat. I didn't have enough pens for every seat. When you've been able to identify the thing that you need to turn from, try to bring it down to one word. Or a short description. And after, after that, Reflect on what your life would look like without that. What would your life look like as the new creation? And write that down too. Let me give you some time in silence. All right, as you finish up, um, I was going to say you can do with these cards what you want. I hope they're a reminder of what you want to turn from in order to turn towards God. Perhaps this is just a good exercise for you to identify what it is that the Lord wants you to turn from and what he wants your life to be like. But as the Israelites confess their sins in community, I invite you to confess your sins within this community. As you think about this, this word you wrote down, or idol, or sin, we are going to pray a prayer of confession together. This is the prayer that we pray during morning church every Sunday. So if you'll join with me, it's on the screen. Father in heaven, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We acknowledge our need of a savior and we humbly repent. Speak the word that we may be made clean. Wash us that we may be whiter than snow. Restore to us the joy of your salvation, that we may delight in your will and walk in your way to the glory of your name, now and forever. Amen. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we are forgiven. Let us worship him together.